Did you know your daily routine could be the key to your next vacation getaway? NerdWallet helps you compare travel and cashback cards to turn your everyday purchases into your next unforgettable getaway experience. Traveling doesn't have to be expensive, and daily expenses don't have to get in the way of your next escape. Imagine purchasing food and earning points towards a free hotel room, or earning points toward a flight by simply buying gas. Regardless of your financial situation, the NerdWallet team will help you make sense of your options at nerdwallet.com. Get expert information from an award-winning team of nerds to make even the most complicated money questions and topics easy to understand. NerdWallet's dedicated team will offer the tips you need to get that vacation you've been waiting for without breaking the bank. NerdWallet offers everything you need to make sound financial decisions while costing you absolutely nothing. Find the smartest financial products for you on nerdwallet.com or in app stores by downloading the NerdWallet app. All Hit Radio Welcome to the X-Zone A place where fact is fiction And fiction is reality Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell And good evening, one and all, and welcome back to the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I am your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the Exxon. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And we come to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern on the Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and Exxon Broadcast Network. If you'd like to find out about the Exxon TV channel on Simultv, visit their website at www.simultv.com. And for all the information on the Exxon Broadcast Network and the many fine shows we have available for you, 24-7-365, visit our website, xzbn.net. Exxon Nation, our guest this hour is Michael Anthony Gagliardi. And he is a gentleman who was born in Toronto, and he has quite a story to tell. Instead of me reading the bio, I'm going to ask Anthony to join us now, Michael to join us now. And uh, first of all, Michael, thanks very much for coming on the show. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, um, my story starts in 1968. I was born in Etobicoke. Uh, so I'm a, a, a Torontonian, and uh, I, at the age of 19, I moved to California to pursue music because I didn't have much uh, for me in Canada. And that's pretty much my story from the ages of 3 to 19 that we're going to be talking about uh, tonight. Um, I grew up uh, for, five years in, in, for uh, five years old in kindergarten, and then by the time kindergarten started, I moved up to the small town of Meaford on Georgian Bay. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is where my story takes place. All right. How old were you when you had your first 
encounter because you claim that um, it is the most incredible story of demonic possession. Share it with us. Yeah, uh, you know, it still shakes me up to to talk about it. You know, I'm I'm pretty new. It's taken me forty years to talk about this, okay. and um, I'll just tell you, um, it started. It started when I was three years old. Mm-hmm. Um, that I can remember. I have an older sister who's seven years older, and she remembers it beginning a little bit before that. But the first encounter. Uh, that really set me on edge. I think I was about three, three and a half years old. Um, you know, coming from an, uh, an Italian family, my, my, my family was in immigrants from, from Italy after World War II. <clears throat> and uh, my mother, you know, when, when you're in an Italian family and you're a child, you eat pasta vasule all the time. <laughs> so it's a, like star soup or pastina. Right. And uh, every time at lunch hour, you know, my mother would call me to the table and uh, the soup would be there. Uh, this one particular time, she called me to the table. It wasn't there, and she came up behind me and poured the scalding hot soup all down my shoulder. Oh, God. And what happened from then, <clears throat> she called a taxi to take me to the doctor. She never said a word to me. She never consoled me. <clears throat> I was screaming in agony and pain. Um, I remember it so vividly because it was a, such a traumatic event for me. And uh, we went to the doctor. She never consoled me, never touched me. And then we went home. I don't remember the doctor visit. I don't remember actually going home. But that was the beginning of these strange things that began to unfold with my mother. Now, prior to this, had your mother shown any signs of of, uh, uh, mental issues or depression? Was she under doctor's care for anything? No, no, there was no, there was no doctor's care. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister, who, like I said, is seven years older than me, yeah. she said that mom started acting peculiar. She started distancing herself uh, from the family, um, cutting off us emotionally. Um, since this happened at three years old, I can remember never did my mom ever touch me. Mm-hmm. She didn't uh, say, I love you. She never said anything, anything, nothing nurturing or, uh, or um, signs of affection. And her, her, her behavior grew worse and worse as the years went by. So by the, by the time I was five years old, um, there were strange things happening in the house. You know, I was only five, but right. I remember... I remember my mom just starting to, you know, kind of lose it and kind of be out there a little bit. And by the time we moved up to Meaford, I don't know if you're familiar with the little town of Meaford. It's only 4,500 people on Georgian Bay. It's a very small town. Um, by the time we moved up there, uh, things started to escalate, and her behavior grew worse. Um, her connectivity with the family and with life in general, began to shut down. And this went on, like I said, for, for at least, I, I call it 12 plus years, because those, you know, those were the 12 plus years that I was really you know, coherent mm-hmm. as, a te- as a teenager and able to really see what was going on. But it started, it started before I was three, but that, that was the first incident that I can remember. And it escalated 
Uh, I mean, there's so much in between Mm -hmm. three years old and 18 by the time I left and and went to California, which is where I reside now. But uh, it it got so bad that two times, two times she tried to attempt uh, murder on us uh, and she was taken away in a straitjacket. And those might sound like mental issues, but uh, let me fill in some of the gaps for you. By the time I was 10 years old, my mother began having conversations with herself sitting in a chair. You know, this, this was all a very gradual thing over the years. Right. She began talking to herself, which is, you know, that's a mental issue. Um, but then it escalated from having conversations with herself to having multiple conversations then the voices changed. She had multiple conversations, multiple voices, and then they changed from that into, into um, languages, different languages. And then from that, it went into very violent and angry uh, displays of, of conversations. There was, you know, I, as, as I remember as, as a teenager it was like there was a war going on in her. And by the time I was 13 or 14, it had gotten so bad that she would spend, you know, every waking minute until dusk in her chair, sitting in a chair and going back and forth with all these voices in different languages. And, you know, because it came on so gradual, we just kind of always looked at her as, oh, she's crazy. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't know how to tell people this, but when you grow up in something from, you know, you're three years old and you keep growing up into it, it doesn't seem like anything's wrong. It's normal. You know, and I know that's probably, yes, that might sound very hard to understand, but by the time I was 16 years old and she had attempted murder on my sister, they took her away, they brought her back. Um, She was back within three months. I don't know how you can attempt murder and bring bring a, a parent back into a situation with minors, but it happened. The system failed me incredibly. But by the time I was 16, these conversations were going on all day until the sun went down. And then added to this, this went on for about four years, four and a half years. She began she began hitting herself with a log across her chest. All right, hold on. I mean, just go ahead. All right, I'm just going to have to take my first break here. Uh, Michael, please stand by. Explanation. Michael Gagliardi is our special guest. Uh, He's he's written two books. The first one is Devil Take the Hindmost. It's out now. And uh, coming up very soon in the next couple of weeks is Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2. And uh, it was it's going to be the first book is available now on Amazon and the second book of the uh, Devil Take the Hind Hindmost Part Two will also be on uh, Amazon in about two weeks. Fascinating story, the most incredible story of demonic possession. We'll continue here in the Exxon on the Talkstar Radio Network, Exxon Broadcast Network, and Mutual.
Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Anthony, uh, Michael Anthony Gagliardi is our special guest. He's the author of Devil Take the Hindmost, which is out now and available on Amazon.com. And coming out in a couple of weeks is Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2. And it's called The Aftermath. And, of course, they're both going to be available on Amazon.com. And this, this is what he calls the most incredible story of demonic possession. Now, Michael, um, I, I've heard you talk about your sister. Uh, and, of course, your mom. Was dad in the picture? Yeah, my, my father, he was uh, working out of town so we you know we lived i don't know if you know where meaford is it's on georgian bay and then my dad worked in toronto so he would be down there five six days a week so he was an absentee father he was not there the we're going family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pounds. i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer during during these all of these years, oh my gosh, did but was your dad aware of the changes that were going on with your mom? Did he see these changes, the violence, and he completely ignored them, completely ignored them, and you know to to tell you the truth, we all did, we all ignored it mm-hmm. because it went on for so long, we didn't know what to do until it started escalating. You know, to the point where you know she tried to attempt you know murder on yeah. us, on, on you know my sister and I. So this is when it got really bad, and but, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. I, I find it very hard to understand why it was was she was she charged under the criminal code for attempted murder. No, and that's what this happened twice. And the police showed up, right. the mental institution from Owen Sound showed up, yep. and they took her away in a straight jacket, and three months later they brought her back. Both times? Both times, with minors in the house. Did social services yeah, I, or children's services uh, step in and do anything? They stepped in, and they, they tried talking to me, because yeah. my sister was getting ready to leave. She had had enough. She had had enough. She was already 18. Mm-hmm. She was ready to go. Um, they tried to convince me to leave the house and go live somewhere else, <laughs> which I remember being 16 years old when they were, this is when the second time happened, the, the second time where they took her away. I remember them talking to me and I was sarcastic and angry and I, and I was telling them, so, you know, the only thing you're going to, you're going to do something is if I show up with a knife in my back. Oh my God. Kind of deal. Yeah, and they there was they they failed me completely. I I mean I just don't understand today how how they allowed her to come back into the house. I mean they didn't even have any idea what was going on really. And there were police reports up and down my street because she was going and knocking on the doors of all my neighbors and telling them she was going to cut their heads off. I mean the, the police were at our house all the time. You know, and nothing was ever done. And the first time they took her away, she was chasing my sister around the car with a butcher knife. And the the our next door neighbor happened to see it, heard her screaming, and called the police. And and this happened twice, and they still brought her back. Was that the Ontario so Provincial it, Police, mo- or was it the Municipal Police? Uh, no, it would have been uh, the Meaford, Ontario. Oh my God. Meaford, Ontario Police. 
the local police. It was it was them and the mental institution, which back then was McKinnon and Phillips, which is now part of the Owen Sound Mental Health. You know, I, I'm sitting here just shaking my head on, you know, just by the grace of God, you and your sister weren't weren't physically harmed, but the mental abuse that you both lived for so many years with, I, I can't understand why Family and Children's Services didn't step in, take you out of there and put you somewhere until things could be sorted out. You just don't leave a 16-year-old well, in a house because they don't yeah. want to leave. Yeah, it was... It, you know, they didn't even know the half of really what was going on. They had no idea. I mean, like I said, by the time I was 15, for at least four years, 14 to 18, mm -hmm. she would be going, doing these conversations and going, you know, and have these, these, these manly growling voices, and her voices would change. They would change. They would change into different languages, and she'd be whacking herself with a log on her chest. I mean, I'd leave at 8 o'clock in the morning and try to just be out of there. I would go, you know, hiking up the river, come mm -hmm. back at dusk, and I'd be parking my bike, and I could hear the thuds from outside of her hitting her chest. And she would do that every day. She did that every day for like four and a half years. That and hitting herself with her other hand with a boot across her head. And she did this for all of her waking hours. For four and a half years, I never saw anything but that. And it wasn't until nighttime that things really started to get bad, where she would start screaming. Mm -hmm. I, she would be in her room, and I would hear, it sounded like three or four people, you know, wrestling. We had, uh, we had a subfloor, so, you know, when you bang on the subfloor, you can hear it all over the house. Right. And it sounded like it sounded like three or four people wrestling in there, hitting the walls and hitting the, and I would get so frustrated. I'd be like, what the hell is going on? And then I'd run in there, open the door and she'd be lying there in her bed with their covers pulled up to her eyes. And I'd be like, I'd ask her what's going on. And sometimes she would say to me, Satan's jumping on me, you know, from the ceiling. And then I would close the door, leave. And then five minutes later, here we go sounds like four people wrestling and banging and mind you she was five feet tall and she weighed probably 280 pounds she was she ate everything in sight like an animal it was it got so bad that there was no food in the house and i stole food for about eight years from gardens and from my school I would, I would do elaborate schemes to steal food from children's lunch boxes. And I did this for years. And it came down to the point where we had, my father did this. He had to take every, all the food we have and put it in a freezer downstairs and put a big chain around it. That's how bad it was. She was voracious, just voracious. Like I said, she was only five feet tall. Right. And she weighed probably 260, 280. My God. Did you have any relatives in the area besides your sister and your mom and your dad? No relatives came to see us at all during this whole time when we moved. Mm -hmm. When we moved out of Toronto, we had lots of family on both sides of the family, my mother's side and my father's side. My father had five brothers and one sister, and then all their kids. And we always got together and did stuff. 
when we moved up to Meaford, which is, you know, 100 miles north of Toronto, yeah. you know, to Georgian Bay on Nottawasaga Bay there, uh, no family ever came to see us ever again. We were sequestered up there, and I, I really don't understand. I think there were some family issues that were going on, but, uh, you know, apart from, you know, my mother, but that may have been a, a part of the cause, I'm not sure, because, you know, it was about 1971 when the, the first the soup incident happened. So I wasn't really sure, you know, what, what was going on at that time. And, you know, our parents and our, you know, my uncles and my aunts, nobody talks. You know, it's kind of an Italian thing. You know, nobody has any feelings and nobody talks about anything. So nobody really knows what's going on. Were you able but, to... Uh, you we... know, my. Were you able to talk to anybody at school or, or a doctor or anybody about what was going on? Did you ever reach out for help? No, because I didn't think I needed help. You know, when I went to school, I, I went to school, mm. I was a classic overachiever. I won every academic award. I won every trophy. I was the captain of every team. I won everything. So nobody ever asked if there was anything going on in my life. The only time a teacher asked me anything was in 10th grade when one teacher called me in. She was the homeroom teacher. She called me in and she said, is everything okay at home? And I said, sure. And she said, okay. And that was the, the only reason why she said that is because I was skipping school and mm -hmm. signing my own notes. Because by 10th grade, I was losing my mind. And I didn't even know what to do anymore. You know, it, it got to the point where it was either my mother or me at that point. It was, she was getting extremely violent. The, the mental torture of her talking and screaming and yelling and singing and whistling, uh, it was nonstop from every waking moment. I never heard her go to sleep. I slept in my room for a good, I'd say, eight or nine years, maybe close to a decade, Every time I went to bed, I pushed the armoire. We had a big armoire in my room. I pushed it up against the wall, and I slept in a fetal position with a hockey stick. And I slept in the same position for so many years that I wore a hole from my shoulder, my hip, my knee, and my ankle right down into the springs until the springs were exposed in my bed and with a hockey stick. And every night she tried to get into my room. And I never heard her sleep. She, it was like she never slept. And I had to torture myself, basically, to get to sleep. I would pound my legs until you get that, you know, that euphoric feeling, you know, when you have an injury. Yeah. <clears throat> you get zapped of your, of your energy. I would beat my legs until they were so bad. They were hurting so bad that I would eventually fall asleep. Michael, Michael, we've got to take our news break here at the bottom of the hour. Please stand by. Um, okay. I, I don't know what to say, except uh, God bless you and your sister. Exonation, Michael Anthony Gigliardi is our special guest. We're talking about two books that he's written, Devil Take the Hindmost. It's out now on, uh, on Amazon. His second book that is uh, entitled Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2, The Aftermath, is coming out in a couple of weeks, and it too will be available on Amazon.com. Definitely the most incredible story of demonic possession that I've heard so far. We'll return on the other side of the news. Don't go away. Hello, 
Not much How about you I'm not sure why I called I guess I really just wanted To talk to you And I was thinking Maybe later on We could get together For a while It's been such a long time And I really do miss your Tonight. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking to Michael Anthony Gigliardi, who is the author of Devil Take the Hindmost. It is out now on, on Amazon.com. And coming out in a couple of weeks is The Hindmost Part 2, The Aftermath. And, uh, Michael, thanks very much for joining us and for sharing this horrific story. Um, My pleasure. You know... When when people when people talk about demonic possession, they, you know, they think of the exorcist. They, you know, they think of the cold right. spells, the smells, uh, the levitation, the poltergeist activity. Yes. Was that involved in any part in your in your actual real possession case? Yes, yes. I mean, we heard the, I heard the scratching. I heard the the banging. Yeah. You know, the banging in the house. Um, you know, there was, remember I told you that, uh, when my father had put a chain yeah. on the, uh, freezer, the freezer, yes. And it was downstairs where, mm-hmm. you know, we all have basements in, in Canada yeah. and we, there's an entrance from the inside of the house down to the basement and an entrance from the outside of the house. Uh, one, one summer afternoon I was coming home. I came down the stairs and I saw my mother with a hacksaw hacking the chain off. And uh, the only thing I could say was, hey, and she was in a stooped over position, you know, hacked with the hacksaw. Mm -hmm. And she just turned her face to me. She turned her face to me and she growled like an animal. Hmm. And it scared the crap out of me. But she threw the hacksaw down and, and went running upstairs. I was completely drawn to the horror at this point because it to me it was... It's either her or me. I mean, that's where I was. This was one of us is going to die soon. That that's where I was at, at 16 years old, and I she, I don't know how she made it, but she made it up the stairs, and I was right behind her. She she beat me up the stairs, and you know, like I said, she's five feet tall. Yeah. Two, she's morbidly obese. I mean, 280, 260 to 280, and five feet tall. She ran into her bedroom, slammed the door. And I went to open the door, and I could see the door depress um, <laughs> outward. It began to bulge because she was pushing against the door, and she had a she was holding on to the handle, you know, of the door. And I was trying to open the door. You know, I was so overstimulated and terrified at that moment. I thought, "This is it. This is it. It's it's me or you. This has got to end." I, because I was losing my mind. I couldn't take it anymore, and. I waited for her. I tried to open the door, and I couldn't get the door open. I couldn't get the door open, and she was leaning against it. So I just stood there, and I waited. And all of a sudden, you know, about five minutes went by. The door, the door became, the bulge in the door started to recede. And I could tell that she backed away from the door. So I, I 
grabbed the door, the door handle and I swung it open really quick. And she looked at me and she had a, she had a, a, a barrel in her hand, which my dad would put, uh, he saved pennies in it. For some reason she had that and she had a handful of them. And the second I saw her face, um, we were probably two feet apart. And when I looked at her face, the left side over her eyebrow to her temple was bulging in and out, just like you see on the movies. <laughs> and her eyes were black, just black pools. There was no, um, no pupil. They were just solid black. And she threw a handful of pennies at me and then lunged at me, you know, again with this, this guttural man's voice. And, you know, I'm 16 years old, you know, I've, I'm always almost close to six feet and weighed 126 pounds. So I took off and went down the hall. She chased me down the hall outside. And when I went outside, she didn't come outside. She didn't follow me outside. And all of a sudden I heard her door slam with such power that all the air in the house just sucked out. And I was standing on the driveway and I was... I, I was standing there, I was bent over, and, and I was going, <laughs> I was in utter shock at what I had just saw. I was in absolute shock, and I, I couldn't talk for like mm. probably 10 or 15 minutes, and I thought, I, I, got, I got to call my dad, and, and so I knew that he was home that day, because it was the weekend, and um, he had a girlfriend at the time, and I, I reached in because, you know, our phone was right inside the door, and we had a mudroom there. So I reached in, I grabbed the phone, I brought the phone out outside, and it took me probably 15 minutes to dial the phone number, because I couldn't, my hands were shaking so bad, I couldn't get, you know, there were the rotary, oh, yeah. the rotary phones. I couldn't get my finger in the, the five right. to start, you know, 538, which was our area code. It took me 20 minutes to dial the number because I kept dialing it wrong because I was in such shock. Um, when the, when someone answered the phone, all I said was, <laughs> and, and, and then I heard the lady on the other line say, call my dad's name. He got on the phone. I said, I said, yeah, I don't even know what I said. I didn't say much of anything because I couldn't talk. And he, he knew it was me though. So he, he was only a mile away. So he rushed over and he got out of the truck and he said, because I'm in the driveway still with the phone, mm -hmm. he says to me, what's happened? What's going, what's going on? And I couldn't tell him. I was, I was so in shock. So he decided to go in the house. I followed him. When we went through the entry door, and then there's another door because we had a mud room, the second he opened the, the door into the living room, there was my mother. She grabbed him, threw him to the floor. My, now, mind you, my dad's 5'7". He probably weighed back then 170 pounds. 5'7", 170 pounds. She grabbed him, threw him to the ground, started scratching his face and growling like an animal. This low, guttural. My mother had a very high voice because she was only five feet tall, so mm -hmm. her vocal cords were short. And she had a high voice, but she was emitting this this guttural non-human sound that just freaked me out so she threw my dad to the ground started scratching at his face and ripping at his face finally he broke away from her he ran outside i ran outside with him she slammed the door again boom 
so loud that it sucked all the air out of the house again. And now the two of us are standing in the driveway and my dad is physically in shock. He, he didn't know what to say. He was shaking so bad. I could see his hands were shaking just as bad as, as mine were. And then he got on the phone and he called the police. The police brought the mental institution out and they took her away in a straitjacket. And when they got there, she talked to them because I could hear her because the bedroom window was right, right at the front of the house. She was talking to the police in a very calm voice, very lucid, very controlled. I never even heard her talk like that in my entire life. Like, yes, officer. Yes, nothing happened here today. No, no, there's nothing wrong. I never heard her talk like that in my entire life. And but, they took her away. Well, and then I, I, three months later, they brought her home. I guess the fact that your dad was in the driveway with scratches on his face, the signs of physical altercation was there. And I'm sure, did she keep the house clean? Was the house orderly? I'm sorry? Was your house orderly? Was was it clean? Was it well kept? No. No, I... No. She, com- she completely checked out. It, ever since I can remember, by the time I was five years old, when we yeah. moved to Meaford, she had checked out. All she did all day long was sit in a chair, and talk whistle, to herself. hum, sing, and have conversations back and forth. Okay. It was madness. Um, when when did your dad leave your mom? Uh, it was it was very close after that. Really, what had happened was he sold the house and and got her an apartment um, in Owen Sound, mm-hmm. and a few months later she died. In fact, she died the day I left for California. I left for California. I went up and seen her one time. She was completely out of her mind, snarling and growling and talking in languages and having these conversations like usual, like I was so used to hearing. And she stopped for 30 seconds, came lucid, reached over to a drawer, pulled out a letter, handed me a letter, closed the door, laid back down in bed and started and then going, going into these conversations with, with all these different voices. And that was the last time I saw her. And when I went to California, I left her. California was homeless. I went to Cal. I said, I don't care. I got to leave this country. I got to leave. You know, I was going mad at that point. So I left her California and I slept under the Santa Monica Pier. And then I happened to leave my number with someone that I knew that I had met down there. And they had called two weeks after and said that your mom died. And they said, the coroner said, that they had found her because um, the tenants, the other tenants, smelled something really bad okay, while let- she had died and was decomposing. All right, listen, we've got to take our final break. Please stand by. Exonation, our guest this hour is Michael Anthony Gigliardi, and uh, the name of his two books, Devil Take the Hindmost, and coming out in a couple of weeks is Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2, The Aftermath. We'll wrap up this hour on the other side of this break. Don't go away.
Welcome back, everyone. Our guest this hour is Michael Anthony Gigliardi, and we're talking about the most incredible story of demonic possession. And he is the author of two books, Devil Take the Hindmost, which is out now and available on Amazon.com. And coming out in a couple of weeks is Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2, The Aftermath. First of all, uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And I I can only imagine that talking about this uh, brings up memories that you would rather forget. Uh, why did you write your book? Well, it started off as just uh, a legacy for my kids, because my kids knew know that something went wrong. My kids are in their 30s, early 30s, and, you know, I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to write this mm-hmm. thing. Whenever you girls want to know, I've got two girls, you know, here's what happened to your old man, you know, <laughs> whenever when you're prepared to read it, here it is. And uh, once I started writing it, you know, the girls would always ask me, so how are you coming on your book, Dad? And I said, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm on chapter four, mm-hmm. you know, chapter five. And it was, it was very therapeutic to actually put it down on paper, you know. And, uh, you know, when they tell you, but, you know, that you should write it, it really does help. And uh, it got to the point where, you know, they would ask me. And this, I, I actually wrote it over COVID. You know, I had eight months. I had nothing to do. I'm yeah. a musician by trade. We were the first industry to go and the last industry to come back. So I was writing it, and they kept asking me, and they said, Dad, why don't you publish this? And I, I said, well, you know, nobody's going to want to read this. And they, they're they the ones that convinced me. They said, Dad, this is, people got to know, people got to know, you know. And and uh, that's kind of what spurred me to to make it public, you know, because I, I it really was just for my kids, I you know. It's kind of like you think about your own story, and it's like, who cares? Who cares about my story? You know what I mean? Right. But yeah. from other people's perspective, it's it's different, you know. And that's what the girls—that's what they convinced in me that there would there would probably be a lot of people that would want to read this, that want to know about this, because there's a lot of truth in the book. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of truth, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff to be learned. I mean. If you want to take the demonic part out of it, it's the survivor aspect. I mean, I survived as a child. I was doing my own laundry at eight years old. I was stealing food. You know, I I was basically living on my own, you know, for the longest time. I turned into a very good thief. I stole, you know, from school kids' lunches for, geez, eight or nine years, and they never caught me. I became very good at it. And, you know, I'm not proud of that, but, you know... You, when you need to survive, you, you, the depths you go to to, to help yourself yeah. is incredible. And now I'm not that person at all anymore. 
you know, but, uh, and I'm still dealing with the effects of it. I mean, that, this is why I wrote the second book, because then my girls told me, well, Dad, after you moved to California, you know, it never went away. It actually ruined my life, because I, you know, and I talk about that in the book, you know, I, I have severe PTSD. I, you know, I blacked out 12 times in the last two years alone, you know, just from, I, I can't handle stress. Yeah. I just can't deal with it. And nighttime is the worst. You know, as uh, soon as nighttime comes around, that's when the things got really bad at my house. Very, very scary, you know. And, of course, I was depleted of, of sleep. And, uh, you know, it still carries. That was 40 years ago. And it, still, to this day, I have to knock myself out to fall asleep or else I'll pass out. T- tell I me. won't sleep for four days. Wow. Tell me, do you have any idea or has anybody come up with a theory on why your mother was possessed? Well, yes, and I have, and I've traced back all the information mm-hmm. that I that I can attain, and what it looks like is, you know, back in 1970, 71, 70, um, just before those, those few years, my mother lost her father. She adored him. She, he was her life. Uh. When he, he died in a tragic accident, you know, was uh, killed by a train, you know, because I don't know if you remember in Canada, back in the 60s and 70s, early 70s anyway, people's backyards had no uh, fences. That's right. And their railroad track would go right through. Yeah. <laughs> so he died in one of those episodes. I think he was drunk or something. And I, my, my grandmother went off the wagon because she loved him so much. She went out and started partying. So my mother had to hold together the fort with her two younger siblings. And I believe, because I remember this when I was about three, three years old, you know, um, my, my mother's siblings were to be over at her house and they'd be talking. And, you know, they think just because you're in bed, you can't hear and you don't remember. But I remember them talking about seances and about talking about, because I was named after my, my grandfather that died, that they loved so much, you know. And I think that was the entry point for my mother is that she tried to reach him in a seance and she got more than what she bargained for and she began a life of depression uh from what my sister tells me right after in those years that's when it started she disconnected from life she be she went stoic she had she was non-emotional she had no affection she had nothing and then it began to escalate you know if you know anything about how demonic de- uh, possession works it, it goes in phases. It just doesn't happen overnight like, like television. Yeah. You know, it goes in phases, and then it becomes complete. And that's what happened to her. Over the years, it got worse and worse. She became more vile, more blaspheming, more, you know, the voices started to come out in her. It just started out as her talking to herself. And then that escalated into just absolute madness, hearing her talking in different languages and voices that were not able for her to speak in was, because they were much lower than her voice you know was your mother ever part of a an outpatient uh, outpatient uh, for for mental assistance no never never and and, and was we she were actually ex go ahead was she a very religious person we were, that's what I was going to say. We were actually, my father and my mother were excommunicated by the Jehovah's Witnesses. So she was searching at that time in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. 
you know, when this all happened, you know, and uh, like I said, and and let me paint a picture for you about what she looked like. She, like I said, she was five feet tall. She was, she was, um, maybe she was five feet. She could have been 4'11". She was 260, 70 pounds. She had long, straight black hair, which was in her eyes. Her teeth were all rotten. And she would open up her mouth, and she would wag her tongue at me back and forth, like, like this, and then start screaming and doing all these crazy things. Her tongue had, had serrated ridges all along each side of her tongue, and all of her teeth were almost all gone. All of her molars, they were all just halfway there. She never complained once. Never complained once. Two times I remember when I was probably 14 and 15 or 15 and 16 mm-hmm. that she had a lucid moment while she was pounding herself and screaming and doing these conversations. She snapped out of it. She looked at me and she said to me, they're, they're coming into me, running up the back of my spine into my neck and perching in my head. And then, boom, she went right back out of it and went screaming and, and conversating and hitting herself again with a log. She had like two times, a 30-second, where she was reaching out to me. I was just a kid. Yeah. I, I had no idea what was going on. You know, I had no clue, and I'm glad I didn't have a clue because I don't know, you know what I would have done if I would have realized that it is what, what it was. You know, I was just trying to hold on. You know, and by 10th grade, I, I was losing it. My studies went from, from academic to failures, you know, and no one was reaching out to me. Just my classroom teacher asked me if everything was okay at home, and I said yes. And then by tw- 12th grade, I was one month from graduating. This was in June. I think it was the end of May. The, yeah, it was like May 30th. I went down to the counselor's office, and I said, I want to quit school. And the lady there, who is one of my best friend's mother, mm-hmm. all she, she was actually the counselor there. She said to me, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yes. She said, sign here. So I signed out of school, you know, four weeks before I was going to graduate, you know, because. Are you still there? Exonation, I, I, it seems that we've lost our guest. Strange things happen here when we talk about certain topics. But listen, Exonation, the name of our guest was Michael Anthony Gigli, Gigliardi. He's the author of two books, Devil Take the Hindmost. It's out now on Amazon.com. And Devil Take the Hindmost, Part 2, The Aftermath, which will be out in a couple of weeks. And according to our guest, the most incredible story of demonic possession. We'll be back on the other side of this break at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as the X-Zone continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Retire. 